Cluster Conversations, a podcast by Africa Multiple. Welcome to the Cluster Conversations. My name is uh, Clarissa Fierke. I'm the spokesperson of the research section Arts and Aesthetics and professor in African language literature at the University of Bayreuth. And today I'm here with um, my colleague Ute Fendler as well as um, our guest, um, Pamela Gupta. And um, yeah, probably I should give you the chance first to introduce yourself properly. Yeah, Richard, please. <laughs> yeah, hello, my name is Ute Fendler. I'm a professor in Romance in Comparative Literatures and Cultural Studies. And I'm very pleased to be here today in conversation with Pamela Gupta. Okay, and my name is Pamela, and I'm a research professor based at the University of Free State. In, um, in South Africa. I was formerly at Wiser, which is a research institute based at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. And it's really especially lovely to be here today because we first met, I think, the three of us in 2019, and we've been for a wonderful workshop. And then, of course, things took an abrupt turn. And so it's nice to finally be here in person and having a conversation with you on a fellowship for three, three months, May through July, um, working on a new exciting project on Zanzibar. Tell us more about the exciting project. Of course, I <laughs> think <laughs> I think it's exciting. I hope it's exciting. It is. Um, so it's been a it's a, been a sort of long durée project where I have started with a colleague based in South Africa who's now based in Australia, Meg Samuelson. The two of us went to Zanzibar first in 2012 and subsequent visits for 2015 and 2018, and we got interested in looking at the history of the photography studio. And what's amazing about it is that it, it's it's uh, history goes from dates from 1930 until the present, um, run by a Gujarati father and son, Ramshad and Rohit Oza, who, who created a really sort of an amazing archive of works that documented everyday life in Zanzibar, um, as well as being uh, commissioned photographers by the Royal Sultan, the Omani Sultan, as well as by the post-revolution um, independent state. So what's amazing about this, this collection is that it's such a range of images. And what I've been interested in doing um, based on these three sort of fieldwork visits, um, is to really collect images, uh, allocate them to the CAST archive, that's the Capital Arts Studio, um, shortened version of it, um, and to figure out sort of what these images say about Zanzibar, post, pa uh, past, present, and future, and to try and read some of the images in creative ways to say something um, more about what you, what you can do with images and the idea of the expressive as, as saying something more than what the image actually itself contains. That's such an amazing archive. I'm in the Capital Art Studio and I'm, I'm really so happy that you managed to um, yeah, actually work on it, which is already, I think, a very, very di difficult thing to do. And it's such a special um, kind of um, kind of archive since it kind of uh, spans the whole 20th century up to up to the um, up to the present. Um, so, well, congratulations actually first of all on <laughs> work working on this and, and being able to do so. Um, let let me start with a uh, with the first question which you <laughs> already have in the introduction to the Green Book, <laughs> the, um, decolonizing. Portuguese, uh, Portuguese decolonization. decolonization. <laughs> you see, I remember books by, by color. I like that too. That's why I chose <laughs> the green color, actually. <laughs> so, even in, so in the introductory part, you talk already, you make the distinction between uh, photography um, of history and then uh, photography as history. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that recurs, that also recurred in the cluster presentation you gave in 2000, and I think it was 19 even, or 20. No, it was two, 20, 20, because right, it was during the, the pandemic, the, during the pandemic yeah. when I was supposed to actually come yeah. and present that work. Yeah, which is one of the chapters of this yeah. book. Um, thank you, Clarissa, for that wonderful question. Yeah, I think, um, so I trained in photography in my undergraduate in college, and I think I, I didn't work on photography for a long time, and now I'm revisiting an old sort of haunt of my own, but looking sort of more researching photography than actually producing my own. Um, and I first wanted to address your point about the difficulty of this archive and actually being able to research it, because I'm really grateful to my partner, um, Meg Samuelson, for sort of pursuing the topic jointly, and I think that made it easier because we would go and sit there and think, oh, the shutters are closed and he's not gonna come out today or open for business. And um, then miraculously they would open the next day and we could go back and pursue our research. And you know, again, we've, it's been timed over three visits. So it's been you know, hard to organize and to really, to get Rohit's, um, to talk about his father. Cause it's a, it's a difficult past, it's a complicated history. And I think one that these images tell really beautifully. Um, and so I think this is where this idea of photographed as history rather than of history is an important distinction. It's something that Patricia Hayes has, has written a little bit about and I'm picking up from her. And I actually pursued it first in my book, the green book as you referred to, <laughs> um, entitled Portuguese Decolonization in the Indian Ocean World, where I looked at a photo archive of a Mozambican photographer named Ricardo Rangel. And in those images, I really felt like he articulated conceptually what I was trying to write about. And so I wanted to approach his archive, um, which is a very different archive of images, sort of in the 60s, 70s period, leading up to Portuguese decolonization, um, to say something about the matter, the physical material aspects of decolonization in the Portuguese colonial world. And so when you look at images as history, as opposed to of history, then you can really look at the materiality of the image, how it was produced, the paper, the image itself, you can read it um, in so many different ways that that, that opens up instead of of history. As a, and I think when you use the word of history, you're documenting something, whereas as history, then it itself is, is the product of that history. Um, so that's one distinction that I was interested in pursuing in that particular book, and I've sort of expanded that or building upon that, um, that concept with this project, which again is really about this you know, very different place, very long durée archive, um, really playing with the images in a way that I didn't with the, with the green book. So um, I'll end there for now. Yeah. Um, thank you. I think it speaks very well also to the, to the concern in, in our research section where um, we try to think, um, well, part of it is aesthetics. So also in the sense of sensuous perception. So what, what do the arts in a very broad sense actually do? Yeah, they do, don't just represent something, they mm -hmm. don't just speak of something, but they speak in their own kind of particular way. Mm -hmm. And um, that is not easily tran translatable into language. So often, so to say, they, um, they grasp something probably like, now you refer to Rangel, like his pictures then did for Mozambique at a certain point, which is then you feel like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And then you basically have to kind of think, yeah, what exactly is it? Mm -hmm. And so, so I see lots of connections, so to say, to very um, um, prominent questions that we have there. Um, or, well, and, and I think even, well, you've also worked, uh, um, or you've also engaged with artwork yourself as well, not, not only photography. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, I think 
what we mean by art is very complicated, right? And I think I'm trying to think about photography as a form of art and reading aesthetically, if, that, if that's, you know, mm -hmm. and that's about reading against the grain, along the grain, within the, within the frame, outside the frame. I mean, there's all sort of techniques. It's about shades of gray, black mm -hmm. and white, the tone, the affect. Mm -hmm. um, it's also bringing in sort of the sensorial reading, mm -hmm. which I think of as mm -hmm. more aesthetic. I'd say aesthetically attuned, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about how you can imagine the whirring of a sewing machine. I wrote a piece that I mm -hmm. presented on tailors and photographers and thinking about the soundscapes of mm -hmm. those images um, and putting them into the reading of the image as being aesthetically attuned. Yeah. So that's what I'm attempting to do. Uh, with the capital R studio, yeah. the, one of the chapters we also deal then with the concept of the dark room. Mm -hmm. What I also found very interesting, I mean, especially um, the way you explained then to the process of taking photos and how you can link it to history. Could, could you maybe yeah, elaborate certainly. a little bit yeah. on that? Yeah, I got really interested in um, concepts of darkness because I actually went to a conference on darkness, which was in Svalbard, and it was quite amazing. It was 2019, right before, you know, right around the corner mm -hmm. happened. Um, and the conference was physically in the dark, um, and it was all papers and cultural studies on darkness. And so we presented our work in the dark because it was um, the winter solstice in, in mm -hmm. Svalbard at the time. And I think that affect or feeling of being in the dark and thinking about darkness really sort of pushed people further in their research. So I think that was really an important aspect of the beginnings of this piece. And I was also interested in thinking about, you know, we always talk about photography and the, the produced image, but what's happening behind the scenes and thinking <laughs> about the physical dark room. And it was partly based on a casual conversation with Rohit Oza one day about saying, oh yeah, the dark room used to be back there. And it was also about a PhD student of mine who's doing, who's finished now a brilliant PhD, who was thinking about the dark room girls and the ways in which the gendering and the ways in which the women mm. in, the, in the South African context were put in the back or sort of developed and the men were out front with the finished image. So I wanted to play with both those ideas and think about the dark room itself and realizing that I didn't have that much information on, on the physical dark room of Capital Art Studio. And so the next time I went back, I was able to have a longer conversation with Rohit. Um, and he, you know, he told me very interesting details about that dark room and where it was located and when it was moved off site um, and what the purpose of it was and the, tech the chemicals and the changing technology. So it gives you a whole different history of photography in a way, and what I got interested in thinking about was not only the physical material space of the dark room, but thinking about reading for darkness and images. And I focused on images of the sky and um, and the water, and thinking about that relationship. Um, and often, you know, one is light and one is dark, and the ways in which compositionally you almost have that balance of darkness and lightness. And thinking about darkness implies lightness, thinks about implies race implies white, black, mm -hmm. and all of those things. So I really use it to ruminate on sort of concepts of darkness and what, what other concepts they, they bring to us. Yeah. We also had the chance to visit the, your studio as well in, what was that, in Quite April, yeah, yeah, in April 23. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was reading um, your, your article, which brought me turned into this chapter, I also thought about this, I mean, this very sunny street, and mm -hmm. then you enter into this, into the dark, dark, <laughs> very dark, dark studio. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of you enter yeah. past the past and history at the same time, I mean, like physically, what I found also very interesting. Just uh, maybe sm uh, another short question, because in the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned uh, that the art studio is past, present, and future. Could you say something about the future aspect? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, 
So Rohith owes it today sits with those temporalities, and I think they're always in conflict. Um, as I said, he's, a, he's not the most um, welcoming person in that darkened space, and that's actually a really beautiful point about entering into that darkness from the light. Um, <laughs> and I think he reluctantly became the sort of proprietor, and it was supposed to be one of his brothers who was to take over, and he didn't. So he kind of got stuck on some level taking over his father's legacy. So his relationship to that legacy is complicated. Um, and he's also very much protecting, so he's protecting his father's legacy in some ways. And I think he's taken it on and he's proud of it now and that's what he does and that's what he, he chooses to do. Um, but he's also very much living in the present moment, which you know the role of a photo studio in Zanzibar today is not an easy space to, to function mm -hmm. as a business. So he does a lot of passport photos which are very boring and tedious work. So he still does his sort of, you know, street photography on the side and, so, and does weddings and does commissioned work. But you know, it's not the same mm. as his father's life, which was very rich as a, as a street photographer and commissioned mm. work compared to his own. But he's also very much controlling, I guess, the unfurling, if you can think of the, the Dow's sort of sales mm. unfurling as well, of his father's legacy into the future. So he's very much controlling what's happening with the heritage industry today in Zanzibar. Mm. So he's very selective about who he lets, he gives permission to, to reproduce his father's images and in what mm. context. And he's very disapproving of most of the sort of heritage industry attempts to try and recolonize his father's images. Mm. Perhaps a little bit too, too much so, um, in a way that they don't get shown enough because mm. he should be more proud of them, I think, in my opinion. But um, it's something he's, he's negotiating himself. And I mm. don't see an, a likely heir. He's mentioned a nephew, I think, who doesn't live in Zanzibar, who might take over at one point, because Rohit right now is 73. And mm. it was great that you went to visit him, because you know I haven't seen him since 2018. Mm. So to see those images of him is really lovely. And he's aging, you know, gracefully, mm. but he's aging. And I sent those images to Meg in Australia, and she really enjoyed them. So mm. she really appreciated it. Um, so I worry a little bit, but I think there is a sense of who's the rightful person mm. or heir to continue this legacy. Okay. But are there not also a lot of imagined futures, if you want, in the in the pictures? Like there are all these, um, I mean, on the one hand, so to say, the heritage, but on the other yeah. hand, then the statesman visiting um, Tanzania in the 1960s and yeah. 70s when the future is so wide open. Yeah. And then you have the, the project um, financed by the GBR, the blocks, which he really, there are the, all these photo mm. um, photographs, which are so much, they shout about modernity in a yeah. sense. Yeah. And yeah. about a completely different future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's the future that he himself is trying to create, and then the imagined futures in those images, mm -hmm. which are so hopeful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite incredible. I mean, there's there's images in the studio, if you look really closely, of like Obama, not Obama, sorry, Clinton visiting. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of the state leaders and showing the hope of that future in the images themselves, even in that studio space. But it's what's interesting is that Meg has written about it being it's sort of, you know, and, and an anachronistic. It's almost stuck in a certain moment of that hopefulness, and then it just kind of dissipates. And you can see the sadness there as well. And that's where that darkness mm. comes back in. And it kind of puts a veil over it um, and tries to shut it down yeah. at different moments. So, yeah. I was also thinking um, now, also um, reading this article also about, uh, you refer to it, the dark rooms of history. Mm -hmm. And as well, if you want the dark sides of history yeah. as well, mm -hmm. because of course you can also wonder the many things left out, so yeah. to say, in yeah. the in the photographs, or so to say, the dark side also even of Zanzibar town, mm -hmm. um, where of course you, you you can kind of ex I mean you can look at this history from very very different angles, 
Um, but I, I think the metaphors of the say of, of the dark, the darkness works quite well. Mm. I mean, both what I like really is materially and technically, yeah. as well as if you look at, so to say, the yeah. different histories there. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and I think that's where the darkness piece, I think what I'm trying to do with this book project is each chapter sort of focuses on or, or exposes a different aspect of Zanzibari's history, and that darkness is that moment of the revolution, which obviously isn't darkness, it's light for other people, right? Um, but the idea then that actually photography was sort of destroyed in that moment of, of darkness of the revolution. And since uh, Ranshad Oza was commissioned by the Sultan, mm -hmm. um, he was then told to destroy all his images. So it was a moment of darkness in those ways too. So there's, there's a playing of darkness and all these different motifs mm -hmm. um, that happen through the history. And then I think other chapters will then focus on different aspects. Mm. Um, it's an iconoclastic moment. Yeah. Right? And get yeah. rid of some mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was very much reminded as well of Gurna's writings mm. about the revolution as mm -hmm. well as a very ambivalent moment or yeah. a violent moment yeah. as well to many families. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's incredibly violent and ambivalent to so many different people. And I think those histories are just emerging now. There's a, a recent book, uh, William Bissell and I cannot pronounce her surname, Sore, mm -hmm. um, an edited volume that has a really important, it's a very important book, and I think it's been overlooked actually. Remembering the, the, remembering and the voices of the revolution. Um, I actually have it here in Bayreuth with me. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredible collection for showing um, the different voices because it was so clearly seen as this moment of sort of the victory of the post-colonial state, yeah. but the violence of that particular moment of independence and what I would argue my second, mm -hmm. the green book, is what we have to think of the conditions of decolonization mm -hmm. as shaping what happens after. Um, and no one's looked at that except for these, for this mm. wonderful collection that's mm -hmm. come out. So, um, yeah, that's part of it. I was also wondering because it's also um, probably anachronistic in the sense of um, the community he is part of, mm -hmm. or so to say, the Ozas, who are kind of mm -hmm. there are just a few people in a sense yeah. left of the Goan community on Zanzibar compared to. Uh, what did I read this morning, the 1950s, where there are like um, 30,000, yeah. yeah. and, um, and now it's a handful um, of, of families. So I wonder also, and you've worked so much on different um, diasporic Goan communities and Goans between uh, empires. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and also s always stressing the fact that Zanzibar means a different thing for Goans compared to Mozambique, for instance. Yeah. Could you? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, I wanted to actually go back first to the Gurna point. Mm. Um, his books, I think, are really emblematic of the mm. complexities of Zanzibari society and his own experience of leading. Um, I had the fortunate um, experience of being with him at SIAS, which is the Stellenbosch Institute for Advanced Study at the same time in 2018, and we, we, they purposely overlapped us. So it was really wonderful to be in conversation mm. with a writer, and I always believe Fiction tells you sort of theory in some ways. It mm -hmm. informs it in a way that isn't articulated yet. Um, so, and he was, it was a really wonderful moment because he was able to point out one of the images and he said, Pamela, you've got the date wrong. I can mm -hmm. see by the Standard Bank sign mm -hmm. that this is pre-revolution. It's not after. Mm -hmm. That would have been um, sort of destroyed, taken down, and it wouldn't have been that bank mm -hmm. anymore. So, little details like that where the attunement of someone who's from there and knows those images and those streets mm -hmm. is really quite amazing. Yeah, I, I ended up working on the Goan diaspora without, by, but not by intention. Mm -hmm. So my PhDs are in Goa on a very different project mm -hmm. in the history of the corpse of St. Francis Xavier, a very long durée historical ethnography from the 16th to 20th century. 
Um, and I fell in love with Doha, and I always loved going there, and I've written a little book on heritage in Japan in Doha. That's a recent thing that's more an homage to, to, to a place that I know for 25 years. And with that project, I was interested in thinking about the complexity of your relationship to a place that you love and how you write about something um, as it's changing, both good and bad. And as I moved to the South African Academy from my training in the U.S. and started working there, I realized that Mozambique afforded an opportunity to look at something that was connected through the research on world through my previous research in Doha. And of course, when I got to Mozambique, I realized there was a whole Goan diaspora that I didn't really know very much about. So I became um, one of the people writing on that topic. Mm -hmm. And for me, it opened up the space to think about decolonization and realizing it transformed the way I saw Goa when I looked at it from Mozambique, mm -hmm. as opposed to just looking at Goa from Doha, um, and the ways in which sort of the Lusophone empire was an empire of diaspora in some ways, and couldn't talk about the, the elsewheres without, they were le being left out of the story, and it was an incredibly important part of mm -hmm. that, um, of, the, of empire making in some ways. And then, um, unbeknownst to me, when I started working in Zanzibar, and Oza and himself is Gujarati, um, and came over through these inter-imperial networks and uh, trained with the Goans. So I had not known that prior to um, Oza's arrival um, from the late 1800s till 1930s or so, all the Florida spheres were run by Goans. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got interested in what trades these Goans um, sort of took on. And I wrote a small piece about sort of the um, being modern and the ways in which Goans represented their Portuguese modernity and sold themselves as the sort of arbiters of, or cultural brokers, you could say, uh, between different communities and had skills like, and professions like uh, sewing, uh, tailoring, photography, catering, um, and some running small businesses. And I got really interested in the relation, the relationality of tailoring and photography, which I think is the piece I presented to mm -hmm. you guys. And I've developed that one much more in thinking really about sort of tailoring history and photographing tailors and playing with those ideas. And what was so fascinating is that I found gener three generations of uh, photographers, Goan or Gujarati, uh, would tailor fathers. And there was something about that work of adornment that, that mirrored the ways in which a tailor father would then produce a photographer's son. I mean, you know, it's not obviously not always, but the fact that they're, and the location and the proximity and the idea of, of a, cutting an outline in some ways is both tailoring and photography and seeing things, the edges and the framings as very similar um, forms of artistry. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping this is my last book that deals with Goans, but you never know. <laughs> so the next one might be around the corner. Um, do you want to, I found this, um, the, the concept, well, in that version of the paper that yeah. I read, the concept of adornment, mm. um, a really interesting mm -hmm. one. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. It's a term from Liam Buckley, who's an anthropologist um, based in the U.S. I think at James Madison University, if I'm correct. And I had a small event on vernacular photography collections in India and Africa, and I'd always loved his work, so I was able to bring him to South Africa for the event, and just meeting him and talking to him about his work. And he works on studio photography in the Gambia, and. Um, he was more interested in thinking about the relationship, the proximity of tailor shops next to photography mm -hmm. shops. And he has a little bit on this idea of the surfaces and the edges. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wanted to push it further um, to really think about that relationship. And I've since collected quite a bit more information on sort of tailoring and photography and finding it in really interesting places in South Africa as well. And often the same shops were used for tailoring and photo studios, mm -hmm. or the tailor would sell the back room to the photographer community. Mm -hmm 
contemporarily. There was something about those two professions that are really interesting, I think, throughout, I'd say, the late 19th, 20th century. Um, and you know, the Goins in Zanzibar, the images are incredible, these tailored um, dresses, outfits that they would make for um, the Christian community. Um, and again, I'm talking about a certain segment of the Goan population that was largely Catholic. Yeah. And, and I, I don't talk about the Hindu Goans because they were less, they didn't emigrate as much to East Africa. Mm -hmm. um, but that's something that, again, shows the complexity of Goa itself as a category, which is, is very complex mm -hmm. to understand uh, and is always changing. Definitely. <laughs> Can you say something about the three of us in terms of our Indian Ocean scholarship? <laughs> <and> <laughs> um, probably, um, probably because, so to say, we have the converging point of also having visited um, um, uh, India together and also working on the same and with the same artists, mm. um, which I think also. I think this was the first encounter as well in Lisbon when each of you presented. Yeah, and I actually had no idea that you had been writing about him. <laughs> and at the same time, I had written a little bit on him. Yeah, yeah, so that was a really nice sort of moment of reverberation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and your ideas really helped me to think about that piece in terms of writing about his work. Yeah, maybe we can take it from there then, because then when we were talking about Subodh Jaka and about the, in which way his his oceanic art, or he calls himself oceanic artist, mm -hmm. in which way this is a relational art. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you think that we could also use uh, this concept when we talk about the art studio, the photography mm -hmm. studio, mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. a relational art, maybe? Yeah. Could you say more on that? What you mean by relational art? Relational, at least what I what yeah. I what I use it for Subodhaka is uh, because he put he tries to put into his artwork always references and stories that always link the different uh, places and spaces. So it's always Goa and Africa and Europe mm -hmm. and and Arabian countries. Mm -hmm and China, actually yeah. the whole world is there, yeah, yeah, connected yeah, yeah. by oceans. Yeah. Um, in this way, mm -hmm. relational. I mean, bringing all to using the different kind of uh, materials, bringing it all together, yeah. but definitely also make it kind of visible and palpable, mm -hmm. touchable mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. for everybody to see and apprehend what does that mean that we are all connected. Okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, I think because I've been going back to Goa and I met Subodh on my own and it got really fascinating. He started this museum at Goa Moog. Mm. Um, and I think we probably both went around the same time but we didn't know each other mm. and started talking to him because he's a charming man as well, person, um, who's very charismatic and the way he represents his art um, is really quite beautiful and he's thought mm. through you know, how to articulate what he's trying to do mm. in this relational manner. I mean, I would say with the, just off the top of my head, I would say with, with Capital Art Studio that I'd say Ronchado's is much more relational and Rohit's is less so. Because um, Ronchado is a product of that Indian Ocean flows and in mm. some ways his work speaks to that complexity of Zanzibar within that space. And not that Zanzibar is less complex now, but I don't think Rohit's is documenting Zanzibar in the same way that um, Zanzibar during Ronchad's era was looking outward more and Rohit's is looking at Zanzibar sort of facing inward into the, onto the African Tanzanian mainland. Mm. So he's more invested in those kinds of localized dynamics that are relational in their own way, but not in that sort of referential globalized mm. way that uh, I would say Ronchad was more of a worldly subject in that sense. Mm. 
Um, but what's interesting is that Rohit has such a keen eye of what his father was doing that in some ways he's making sure that, that those particular relational images are getting retrieved because mm. he knows he has a, you know. Yeah, yeah. That, I, actually, that was the impression that, that I had. He's the one who would, I mean, was sitting there for hours and uh, mm. not, not as much, of course, as you were. <laughs> But then with each photography, he would say, yeah, but actually this, the story of this photography mm -hmm. is, and then he starts telling, giving you the whole context. I mean, it's going back, not yeah. the context, and then that, but this is then, you just go to the next street, this is where my father took the photos, this is what happened in the meantime. Mm -hmm. So he gives the whole, the whole history, like more like a griot, yes, if a it griot, were the yeah, West yeah, African yeah, context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a good way, I hadn't thought about it as a griot, yeah. but he is a griot. Kind yeah. of a griot <laughs> function. Yeah, yeah completely. Because he really, um, he can tell you the story of almost every image of his photos. And we exactly. decided he had a photographic memory because he knew the numbers, the cataloging in his head of what image. Mm. So we would describe something to him and he said, yeah, yeah, let me go, I'll come back tomorrow and I'll find it for you. And he'd come back with that image because he knew which one it was mm. and he knew that in the catalog. Um, yeah, and so the, the piece just around this up, the piece that I'm gonna present uh, in two weeks is on the concept of the crowd from the archive. And I was just going over our notes, and Meg was amazing at taking down the notes because she was better at, faster at typing it down because he would mm -hmm. speak so quickly. Um, you know, his description of this photo, this story, and you know, we have them all labeled. Mm -hmm. And it's quite amazing that he'll just add in one line, it completely transforms how you understand that image. Mm. Um, and so you'll be seeing some of his beautiful images from, from the crowd when we do it again. I'm just wondering, I mean, ab about the relational um, point and, and uh, what I really like a lot and I think that speaks a lot to my uh, thinking about um, Zanzibar and probably East Africa as yeah. well, this kind of layered idea. I think you, you quote um, Ben Gona as well at mm -hmm. the beginning about the sediments, yeah. so to say the archaeological sediments yeah. and how some get washed away and others in a sense get forgotten and so on. That, that very much speaks also to my thinking and I'm, I think one of the problems I have with Indian Ocean Studies is always about the relations, as you say, outward, mm -hmm. so to other parts of the Indian Ocean. But of course, so to say, we shouldn't forget that, of course, relations inward are as much part of the Indian Ocean as well, because that's, I mean, that, that's what, what, has, uh, what has happened as well in many, many um, Indian Ocean places, that of course we can't neglect the fact that there are nation states as well, and they also impact on the particular histories as well. So what I like is, is very much, I think, the idea that, um, you know, looking at relations so in different kind of um, directions and... I think that's, yeah, yeah, that's incredibly important because I think you have to look at Ranchard and Rohit and it's mm -hmm. not right just to look at Ranchard um, because you need, you need that anchoring back and you need, I think you're completely right, Indian Ocean Studies has taken on this idea that it's global and it's everywhere and we're not doing enough of the harder work which is to look more sort of insular and in, in sort of the archipelagos that are being created, recreated and created layered by. Mm -hmm. Or just spaces. others, just other relations, mm -hmm. because then of course the Cold War becomes yes. extremely, the Cold yes. War relations become extremely important as well on Zanzibar, mm -hmm. which it's just a diff, it's just a shift if you want yeah. of, yeah. of perspective, but it's also. It's there, we just don't, aren't yeah. looking enough for it. But I do think there's a new sort of emerging mm -hmm work on Cold War and thinking about the impact of that mm. in, in East Africa, mm. especially, as well as Angola. Mm. I mean, it becomes very provincial, mm -hmm. right? It becomes very insular. It becomes also very part of this nation, which is a increasingly a strange beast in the 20th century. And yeah. then, and then yeah. it also has this global connections. And still, of course, there's also Indian Ocean connections. People go to the Gulf to work, for instance, for mm. in the 80s as well. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, well, I think that's what I really like about sort of thinking in, I mean, this cross-generational thing and really think about how these kind of relations actually change there. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm looking that. forward yeah. to well, well said. seeing I more. Agree. Seeing more pictures and uh <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to showing more images, <laughs> and I've enjoyed the conversation we've had today. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you very um, much. I guess so the conversations will continue. Yeah, <laughs> 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 exactly. for sure. <laughs>